Well, if you're with us last week, you recall that we looked at the promised new covenant that was first promised through the prophet Jeremiah. It's in Jeremiah 31. And we looked at it through the lens of Hebrews 8 and how Jesus is the fulfillment of that new covenant. And the verses we're looking at this morning follow on that great promise of God putting uh, in our hearts His law, writing it upon our minds, the grace that He will show us ultimately uh, in Christ. And the passage we're going to look at is Jeremiah 32 and verses 1 to 27. And in these verses, what we get to see is Jeremiah trying his hand at the real estate market. So, that's what we're going to focus on this morning. We'll see how it goes. Jeremiah 32, beginning in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye, and he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord." Though you fight against the Chaldeans, another word for the Babylonians, you shall not succeed. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come and say to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth. In the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase, containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Masiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them, O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. 
You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel among all mankind and have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders and with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. And you gave them this land, which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it. But they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, what a bad time to buy. (laughs) Terrible time to invest in some property. The year is 587 B.C. Jerusalem's under attack by Babylon, and Jeremiah... Well, he's under arrest by order of Zedekiah. And the reason Zedekiah threw him in prison is because he kept preaching the same sermon over and over again, the same sermon, a sermon that went like this, Babylon will destroy Jerusalem, Babylon will deport God's people, and Babylon will bring an end to the short reign of Zedekiah. This was Jeremiah's repeated sermon, and by this point, Zedekiah's heard it so often that he's memorized it. (laughs) Did you catch that in verses 3 to 5? He repeats it verbatim. He's heard this sermon so often. And needless to say, Zedekiah was sick and tired of Jeremiah's preaching. It not only angered him, but it made him extremely anxious. So he comes up with a solution to put an end to it. I'm going to shut him up by shutting him up in the court of the guard. That'll make him think twice about preaching. So that's what he does. And notice, as he puts Jeremiah in prison, he asks a question. Why? Why do you keep preaching this one sermon? It's an understandable question. If I preach the same sermon every Sunday, eventually somebody's going to say, why are you doing this? Actually, I think it might take four or five weeks, and you might actually remember that that was the sermon I preached before, but that's another story. (laughs) So what's the answer? Well, notice at this point, Jeremiah doesn't give an answer to King Zedekiah, but you and I know the answer. We know it because Jeremiah articulates it later on in verses 23 and 24 when he says, Jerusalem's going down, and Zedekiah won't succeed because God's people didn't obey his voice our walk in His law. Here's the reason the siege mounds are going up. God's people did nothing of all that He commanded them. Jeremiah preached this same sermon because this was God's one message. His one message that actually says this, if you give yourself over to idolatry, if you give yourself over to autonomy, 
If you reject me to live only for yourself, then all you'll get is judgment. Therefore, turn back to me. But the people refused. They didn't listen. Yes, Zedekiah had memorized this one sermon, but in reality, he never really listened to it. That's a warning for us, by the way. We can memorize the gospel, yet never really listen to the gospel. Zedekiah knew the sermon, but he didn't really know the sermon. And the reason is, is because he preferred his own self-constructed fantasy to God's reality. Zedekiah preferred his own fabrications about what constitutes life, success, and peace to God's truth. Zedekiah was opposed to God's message, and therefore he's obviously opposed to God's prophet who proclaims that message. And so here's what he does. He throws him into prison for this one sermon. And ironically, he throws him into prison for this one sermon at the very moment that Jeremiah's one sermon is being fulfilled. You can imagine the arrows whizzing over. Why do you keep saying this is going to happen? Duh, because it is, and God said it would. So there's the background to the rest of this story. Jeremiah is in prison, and here we see him making a land purchase from prison. Now, I'm sure you're all aware that our own housing market is not doing so well. I read this this week, that the Texas housing market is experiencing a major shift. The median sales price has decreased by 3.5% year on year, and the number of homes sold dropped by 16.2%. And the current mortgage rate is hovering around 6.9%. It's not a good time to buy. But in Jeremiah's day, it was the worst time to buy, especially to buy a piece of property that was located on the outskirts of Jerusalem, which was the very place that the Babylonians were currently occupying. Yet that's exactly what Jeremiah does. He buys some worthless property. Here he is in prison, and God tells him that he's out to have a visitor. His cousin Hanamel is coming to see him. And Hanamel isn't coming to check on Jeremiah, as a good cousin should. No, he's coming with a proposition. A proposition that in light of the present circumstances was foolish. Buy my field that's in Anathoth, which is Jeremiah's hometown. Buy the property that's currently occupied by our enemies. I mean, imagine today going to, bank, to a bank and trying to get a loan to buy some property in eastern Ukraine or Gaza. Hannibal's proposition made no sense, yet here he is, coming just as the Lord told Jeremiah he would, saying, hey, cuz, have I got a deal for you? Now, we're not told why Hannibal wanted to sell. Maybe he wanted to cash in before the Babylonians took complete control. Maybe he needed to make a quick buck to pay off some debt. We don't know. No, all we know is that to get Jeremiah to bite on this seemingly foolish proposition, Hannibal appealed to something. He appealed to family obligation. He appealed to what's known as the right of redemption. Listen again to what he says. Buy my field in Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. You see, according to Leviticus 25.25, a person's property, if you were Jewish, was always to stay within the family. Therefore, if you ever needed to sell, then you could only sell to a family member who then was to serve as the kinsman redeemer of your property. Now, in a scenario like this, a family member could turn you down. 
No, I don't want to buy. And here I think we can imagine Hannibal going to other family members. Hey, I've got a deal. You, you want to buy some land in, in Anathoth? And they are like, are you crazy? No, absolutely not. We, we can imagine that uh, Jeremiah is Hannibal's last resort. But to his amazement, Jeremiah agrees. He agrees to the deal. He bought this worthless property. And he did so, when, and when he did so, he conducted the deal, notice, by the book. He turned his prison cell into a title office. He, he scraped together some shekels, reviewed the terms of the contract, signed the deed, and notarized it in the presence of witnesses. He also had duplicate copies of the deed made in order to confirm the purchase. And then he asked Baruch, his assistant, his personal assistant, and amanuensis to put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. Now, if you're Hannibal, what are you thinking after the cell had gone through? Sucker. I can imagine him uh, going to the rest of the family and saying, he did it. He, he actually bought the property, that worthless property. Can you believe it? I think cousin Jeremiah might be losing his mind. For who in their right mind would make such a deal? Which raises the question, why did Jeremiah do it? Well, for one, God told him to, and that was reason enough. That's something we need to be reminded of. God told him to, and that's reason enough. As he says in verses 8 and 9, I knew this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the land. In obedience to God's word, Jeremiah paid full market price for a worthless and unusable property. And friends, here's the principle. Even when it seems foolish to do what God says in his word, is always good and right. Do you believe this? Maybe you could ask it another way. Have you invested yourself in what Jesus says in John 14, that if you love me, you will keep my commandments? But you know, there's another reason Jeremiah made this purchase, and it was because he trusted in God's word of promise. What's God's word of promise in this passage? We have the word of promise in the new covenant. What's his word of promise here? It's that this worthless property won't always be worthless. Look what he says in verse 15. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. In the eyes of the world, this was the worst time to buy. But in light of God's word of promise, it was the best time to buy because the very God who was going to exile his people and already exiled some, exile, exile them in judgment, would return them in mercy. One day they and the land would be renewed. And Jeremiah believed this promise, which means that this purchase was an act of faith, audacious faith. Jeremiah was willing to be a fool in the eyes of the world because he believed God and his promise were better, because God's word of promise is sure. Because that word is sure, Jeremiah was able to look through his bleak present to God's better future. That's why he had Baruch place the deeds in the earthenware vessel. 
that they might last for a long time, and he placed them there to serve as evidence for future generations so that when the people came back, they would have the deeds and see what God had promised. Now, here's one of the things that's wonderful about this. We actually have access to those deeds, and we do so not because they're in some museum. You see, Baruch, as Jeremiah's amanuensis, not only placed the deeds in an earthenware vessel, Where else did he place them? Here. Which teaches us that faith doesn't rest on archaeological evidence. It's great when they find some, and so often they do, and it confirms exactly what we have here in the Scriptures. No, faith rests upon God's Word of promise as it's given to us in the Scriptures. It's here that God gives us His Word of promise. His grand word to bring beauty out of brokenness, fullness out of emptiness, homecoming out of exile, and life out of death. Jeremiah's purchase is a witness to us that God is not only able, but willing to do the impossible for His people, to bring new creation out of the nothingness of our lives. And you see, it's because Jeremiah believed God's promise that he was able to live with an orientation to God's future, to that new creation that God promises. And here's the point. Like Jeremiah, we're called to live future-oriented, with our eyes fixed on God's future, and ultimately God's future when Christ will return when He will come again to make all things right and new. And when we have that future orientation, this will inevitably, in some form or fashion, put us out of step with the world. We'll possibly look foolish for our commitment to Christ and our expectant waiting on Christ. Because He who came will come again. We're to live differently in the world as we're continually learning to live by a radically different worldview to that of our secular neighbors. What might this look like? What might it look like to, to live according to this radically different worldview with our eyes set upon God's promised future? Well, let me just give you some examples. To learn this worldview means that we'll be committed to treating the Lord's day as just that. His day and not our day. Gathering with our brothers and sisters for worship will be a priority. We'll go about our vocations as well as our schooling, not simply as a means to, to pay the bills or to get ahead, but as a way to glorify God, bless others, and to actually show the world that work and learning in itself is good. We'll also be a people who are learning to fight the desire to misuse God's good gifts, gifts such as friendship, food, alcohol, sex. Instead, we'll seek to steward God's gifts because we're not owners, we're stewards, and we'll do so according to His design that's given to us in His Word. If we're married, we'll stay committed to our spouses. Even when it gets hard or we think we deserve better, we'll stay committed because we belong to a a God who is fully committed to us, who's invested Himself in our good. 
And to live according to this radically different worldview means intentionally investing ourselves in practicing what we could call the politics of the kingdom rather than buying into the lie that if my political party were to get into office, then my life and our life would be better and more comfortable. We're to invest in the politics of the kingdom. What are the politics of the kingdom? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. It's forgiveness and humility. It's blessing our neighbors, even our enemies, rather than disparaging them, treating them as some disdainable other. Believing Christ has come and will come again is to shape how we live in the present, knowing that how we live now is our witness to the world. Being future-oriented doesn't mean ignoring the present. No, it means in the present, learning to manifest God's coming future. Because here is the reality, God's reality. Remember, Zedekiah preferred his own fantasy to God's reality. Here is God's reality concerning his future. A day is coming when evil will be eradicated. Sin will stop. Sorrow will cease, injustice will end, and death itself will be undone. And as Christians, we're to cling to that future with our eyes fixed on Christ, learning however imperfectly to bear witness to God's future. Because as Christians, we're ones who've tasted it. Where have we tasted it? In the gospel. In the good news that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are citizens of His kingdom, of Christ's kingdom that has come and will come in full at His return. Yes, we may look foolish in the eyes of the world, but we have a very good reason for doing so. And that reason is that God has given us and promised us something better in Christ. It's God's coming future of restoration, renewal, and resurrection that's to shape how we live in the present as ones who are investing ourselves in God's coming kingdom rather than investing ourselves in the kingdom of the world that is passing away. Friends, what are you investing your life in? That's a question to keep asking your heart day by day. Now, you'd think this would be the end of the story. Jeremiah's made his purchase because he believed God's Word. But it's not the end of the story, is it? For what did Jeremiah do after he made this seemingly ludicrous deal? He prays. Why did he pray? Well, because even though he acted in faith, he remained perplexed. He even pained. I think he prayed because he began to have second thoughts about this purchase. Was it really worth it? Will God really keep His promises? You see, Jeremiah, like us, was a real person with real struggles. His faith wasn't without its doubts. Because true faith in the now time is never without its fears 
frustrations, pain, and perplexity. But rather than hide or stuff his doubts, what did Jeremiah do? He took them to the Lord in prayer. And I'm so thankful for this prayer because in it we're given a pattern for how to pray. Here's a prayer that we can use when we find ourselves struggling with doubts concerning God and His promises. And in this prayer, it actually has three movements. Take note of these movements because if this is a pattern, it's something that you can take up and use in your own Christian life. What are the movements? Well, the first is a sigh. Did you catch that? It's a sigh, a groan. And Jeremiah often began his prayers in this way. Ah, oh, Lord God. When he found himself pained and perplexed, fearful or frustrated, he sighed deeply as an expression of his agony. And you see, when we take our circumstances in this present life seriously, when we refuse to bury our heads in the sand, when we refuse to say and sing silly songs like, once I came to Christ, now I'm happy all the day, which is a lie. When we take our circumstances and our own doubts and emotions seriously, when we don't stuff them, try to cover over them so that others don't see, when we don't do that, one of the first things that happens in prayer often is that we just sigh. Oh, Lord God, none of this makes sense. Yet even so, all I have is you. That's what Jeremiah is doing. He's acknowledging his own heartache, his own fears, his own doubts. Ah, Lord God. In doing so, he's also saying, I have nowhere else to turn but you. That's the first movement. What's the second? Well, it's praise. And I don't think here, and we have it in the text this way, and I couldn't put a gap, but I'm actually thinking the ah, Lord God was followed by a long pause. It's not like, ah, Lord God, praise you. That's not the way our hearts work and our lives work. I think there's a long pause here. But eventually that sigh began to give way to praise. Jeremiah praises God for his character, which are manifest in his attributes. You you see, after Jeremiah sighs, what does he do? What's the first thing he does? He acknowledges that nothing, no thing is too hard for God. Yes, this future that God has promised seemed impossible in light of the present circumstances, but rather than give in to his circumstances, Jeremiah praised God for his power. We could put it this way, to counter the weightiness of his present circumstances, Jeremiah intentionally refocused himself on the weightiness of God's omnipotence. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing can thwart your purposes. There is no limitation that you can't overcome. My friends, in our weakness and in those times of bleakness, we must pray and praise God for His sovereign power, His power that is always directed for the good of His people, our ultimate good. What is that? It's to conform us to the image of His Son. God is using all of His power to accomplish that purpose in your life. And Jeremiah, even though Christ had not yet come, was recognizing 
the grace of God's power, and he praised God. What else did he praise him for? His unbreakable love. Verse 18, you show steadfast love to thousands upon thousands, and in light of the length of history, we can say millions upon millions. Friends, our entire lives as believers is built on God's undeserved, unbreakable love. It's His love that saves us. It's His love that sustains us. And it's His steadfast love that will see us through to His good end. His love that's faithful to this great promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. It is always good and right and life-giving to praise God for His steadfast love that never fails. There's another attribute He praises, that's His holiness. God never turns a blind eye to sin. He takes sin seriously. That's actually being shown to Jeremiah in Babylon coming. This is judgment because Israel refused to walk in God's ways. Judgment had come. God was giving them what they deserve, better what they wanted. They didn't want God, and therefore they had no hope. They had no life. Jeremiah watched this, and he recognized, my God is holy. He is holy. The last attribute he praises is God's omniscience. Verse 19, your ways are open to all the ways of the children of man. In his prison cell, Jeremiah had gotten a glimpse of this when his cousin showed up. God told him he would because God knew he would. And when it happened, Jeremiah recognized again afresh, my God sees all, he knows all, he's in control of all. He's in control even of my painful present circumstances. In his pain and perplexity, this is one thing we need to recognize in this prayer. In the midst of his pain and perplexity, Jeremiah did not dump his theology. No, he actually in prayer rehearses his theology as he praises God's attributes. Because you see, prayer is always informed by doctrine, which means prayer is a product of knowing God because that's at the heart of theology, at the heart of doctrine. Prayer is a product of knowing God. Therefore, when you pray, do so with your Bibles open rehearsing who God is, rehearsing His attributes, and recognize that He is worthy of your praise at all times and in all places. So He praises God after He sighs. There's another movement. He remembers what God has done, how God brought all things into being out of nothing, And how he brought Israel out of the nothingness of their enslavement to Egypt. Verse 17, it's you who've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. And then verse 21, you brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. The same strong arm that flung the world into being is the same strong arm that brought Israel out of Egypt. When God's people find themselves in trouble, we see this scripturally, when they find themselves in trouble, wrestling with doubts, when God's covenant promises seem to be coming undone at the scenes, 
What they do again and again is they remind themselves of these two core things, that God is the creator and God is the redeemer. I mean, the reason Jeremiah can say that nothing is impossible for God is because God has already done the impossible in creation and redemption. And it's these two fundamental pillars, creation and redemption, that God is the creator and the redeemer that alone can hold us up in an often shaky and unstable world, being assured that God, our creator, will redeem us in full. Do you struggle to pray? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'll just give you one. Do you struggle to pray? Then here's my encouragement. Take Jeremiah's prayer and make it your own. Put your life and your circumstances into this prayer. Sigh with Jeremiah over your pain and perplexity. Praise God with Jeremiah. Praise him. Praise your God and rehearse his attributes. And remember, remember with Jeremiah that your God is your creator and he's your redeemer. And take note how through this prayer, what happened to Jeremiah? He found himself strengthened. It was in prayer that he was able to recommit himself to God. That's the power of prayer, this gift God has given to us. Look how he ends the prayer in verse 25. He says, yet you. Think about the beginning, now think about the end. How did he begin? Ah, Lord God. But as he rehearsed God's attributes, as he remembered who God is, his ah, Lord God becomes yet you, Lord God. You, Lord God, have said to me, buy this field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. In prayer, Jeremiah became even more convinced that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ever ask or even imagine. And it's that very truth that God himself confirms in verse 20 when he says, Jeremiah, I am the Lord. Just as we sang together earlier, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? We know the answer. We're learning to trust the answer. That nothing is too hard for God. And as Christians, we're able to confess this from a better vantage point than Jeremiah was in prison. And it's not because our circumstances might happen to be better. We're able to confess this more solidly than even Jeremiah because God has done the impossible in who? In our Lord, in Jesus. I mean, as Paul says, Jesus is the one in whom all the promises of God find their yes and amen. I mean, think about it. In Christ, who do we encounter? Our Creator. As we confessed early, it, it, earlier, it's by Him, through Him, and for Him that all things were made. It's by Him that the entire cosmos is held together. It's by Him that your life is held together. When we encounter Christ, we encounter our Creator, but we also encounter our Redeemer, our kinsman Redeemer for the right of redemption. In Christ, we witness God doing the impossible. We witness it in His incarnation when the Creator became a creature. 
In his incarnation, we see the same Spirit who once hovered over the empty waters at the beginning, hovering again over Mary's empty womb so that the eternal Son of God, who is God, might become a full-fledged human being. In the incarnation, Christ became our close relative, sharing in our flesh and blood and being made like us in every respect, yet without sin. Why did he do it? That he might die. That through his death, he might purchase us as his own. Us who were occupied by the enemies, the enemies of sin and death. And those enemies, what had they done with our lives? They made them worthless. But we weren't worthless to Christ. And we know this because he shed his precious blood for us on the tree taking God's holy judgment on himself. Because again, God takes sin seriously. So seriously, he sent his own son to bear it on the cross. And he did this that we who were once rebellious might be completely forgiven and fully accepted. Christ literally spent his entire life, not 17 shekels of silver, his entire life to purchase us. And in his death, he wrote out a deed, signed it in blood, that now says over all believers, purchased and loved by Christ. And then what did he do in his resurrection? He did the impossible again. When Jesus stepped out of that tomb, he actually birthed God's promised new creation. It's his resurrection that proves how committed God is to making all things right and new. And you and I can be assured of this if you are a believer, because here's what the incarnate, crucified, risen Lord has done for us. He's placed his own spirit in earthenware vessels. Us, broken vessels that we are. And the Spirit comes for what purpose? To guarantee believers that we are the beloved children of God and that our future is secure. It's the Spirit who enables us to live differently, even foolishly for Christ in the present. Trusting that how we live now for Christ will somehow and in some way last into His promised future. Friends, never lose sight of who you are as a Christian. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own because you've been bought with a price, the price of Christ's precious blood shed upon the cross. And because this is so, make it your aim, your sole aim, to glorify God in your body, in all that your hand finds to do, trusting that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. My wife, a couple of months ago, decided to do something new with our sons. Every day she would tell them, have a good day. And one day she thought, I don't even know what that means. Have a good day. I want to change it. So here's what she came up with. Honor the king. To which they're to respond with my life. Sorry, boys, you're still working on that response, and it'll come one day. Honor the king with my life. 
because of who you are. The wonder of this story is that Jeremiah's purchase pointed ahead to the great purchase of Christ who gave his all for you because you're his treasure. You're not a worthless piece of property. You're Christ's treasure. And so, friends, know who you are by knowing whose you are. Remind yourself of it day by day as you listen to God's Word, as you seek Him in prayer, and as you, by His grace, invest yourself in Him who first invested His all in you and for you. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this rich passage that speaks to us today because it is Your Word. Continue to give us ears to hear by Your grace. Help us to know who You are. Even now, be filling our hearts and minds with ways that we can invest in Your kingdom because it is better. We can only do this with our eyes fixed upon Your Son. He is the motivation and the power. He is the one through His death and resurrection that has brought us out of our death into His life. So impress more and more upon our hearts by Your Spirit who He is and what He's done for us, for Your glory's sake, our good, and the good of this community. Amen.